0: Amen. Amen. Thank you, intercessors, for interceding, and thank you, worshipers, for worshiping. And we're going to continue on as we look at God's Word together. God's been stirring in some good ways. There's been some really cool stories and cool answers to prayer, and that's why we want to go after that. And that's why we're not ashamed uh, to go after uh, things of prayer and ask God to move. Uh, We don't have anything without him, right? So we're convinced that the more we're convinced of that, uh, the more we actually lean into the work that he wants to do. I mean, think about this. You know, so when Paul writes things like, his strength is made perfect in my weakness. Like if we actually get that, if we actually live that out, we actually think that, we're going to pray differently. We're going to be more uh, transparent about our own needs and the places that we're asking God to work. And so for all the ways in which that's happening, we give God Praise to that. We've seen answers to prayer in our last week, uh, our Good Friday uh, time of contemplation and around the communion table. What a beautiful encounter that was uh, for us as a church family. I know many of you were able to be present with us, and there were just some very sweet Encounters, and I've heard many stories from that service. People saying, "Man, God met me in powerful ways." We were praying for that, and we're thanking the Lord for the ways in which He met many of you at that Good Friday service and Easter. We had a celebration of the empty tomb, and last Sunday throughout the week, I've been hearing various testimonies of stories of your lives. Some of you, some of people that I know, some people that I don't know. Uh, But man, we're just we're just grateful for what God uh, is doing among us. Uh, Next Sunday, we're gonna be having a baptism celebration. We've got four or five people already that are saying like, yeah, I wanna get baptized and uh, we're gonna be celebrating new life. And there's something about that that is just, it's life-giving, it's just like, you know, when there's a new baby in the family or something, you're like, hey, you know, everybody gets a little bit happier and a little more joyful and a little bit more excited about that new life and so we're gonna be celebrating that. Uh, next week as well And there's still time If you feel like Hey I've never followed the Lord In baptism We do baptism by immersion So you're going to get dunked You're going to get wet But it is a beautiful representation Of the death of Christ We're buried with him The life of Christ We're raised to new life And living with him And uh, you make that public profession of faith In front of your church family It's a powerful, powerful thing If you've never done that We want to encourage you to do that um, Let me give you one other one Mm-hmm. So Several of you have been helping with a family, uh, an Afghan family that is a refugee family that is here, and we've given a few little updates here and there uh, for um, different needs and different prayer requests and different things like that. Well, I'm coming to you today with a bit of a big one, but we are trusting that the Lord will answer this prayer as well. Uh, We are looking to secure a car for this family To help them with their next steps of uh, employment and family needs and all of that kind of stuff And I've met with some of the team leaders this week And they gave me a passionate conversation I loved it, I loved what I'm hearing And uh, we think that probably within our church family that car probably already exists So I'm going to ask you to prayerfully consider if the Lord would put on your heart. We're not going to do a special offering today. We don't have to have an offering of cars right now. Uh, But I'm going to ask you to prayerfully consider making a sacrifice if you are in a place of saying, we actually have a car that this family could have. Uh, and we would like to help them get what they need. That is the request that we're bringing before you. I don't know if we've ever put a request like that before the church. Uh, but we don't mind doing that today. If the Lord answers the prayer that way, praise the Lord. Uh, talk to myself or Pastor Aiden. Uh, Mary Ellen Moen is here. She's also been doing a lot of work with this family. Uh, Mary Ellen, can you stand up and wave real quick? Yes. And, uh, and if... Uh, and if, uh, here's a forewarning. If you sit down and talk to Mary Ellen for 10 minutes about her passion for ministering to this family, you're gonna probably find yourself saying, how can I help, let's go, uh, and everything. Even if you're not a car donor, you're gonna find a way to say, how can I pray and how can I be a blessing to this family? So that's, that's a big one. We wanna put that before the church family Ask you to pray about that and consider uh, what the Lord would have you do. All right. We are going to continue on today in our series called Ancient History. We are up to the book of Leviticus today. Everyone goes, Yes, Leviticus, we're there. Uh, We've been tracking with the life of Moses. We talk about the deliverance of God's people, the ongoing revelation throughout all of the Pentateuch. You start to see this ongoing revelation of the power of God, the purposes of God, the character of God, and it's been Interesting for us to be able to read through this in real time and realizing that there are things that we know on this side of the cross and on this side of having God's written word to us that God's people don't know yet. They don't know what He's going to do. They don't know the full extent of the way in which He is going to unfold uh, things to them. They're in real time, and so uh, we're we're seeing this unfold. And so we're through the Red Sea and the law given at Sinai. That's where we're going to be in the Book of Leviticus. The wandering in the wilderness. Uh, And then on to the promised land. And so we're going to continue with this journey as we go through the Pentateuch. Today, I'd actually like you to uh, flip to the end of Exodus in Exodus chapter 40. We're going to read a couple verses there, which will then set up our entrance into the book of Leviticus. So if you have your Bibles, Exodus 40. Um, And here's just a great little passage. It says, uh, and again, just here's a quick backstory. Some of you have been reading through, so you know this, and then others of you, you would say, I'm not quite as familiar or whatever, not a problem. So this is where God's people have been given instruction how to build the tabernacle, how, what their worship is going to actually look like. Again, this is sort of new for them, the revelation of God coming across, the, the tabernacle is now built, it's now ready so that they are able to actually start using uh, this this habitation, this, this house where God's presence is going to dwell. And so this is what it says in Exodus 40, verse 34 and 35. It says, Then the cloud covering the tent of the, covered the tent of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now that in and of itself is a fascinating thing to get your mind around. I'm only gonna say it a couple times, Seth, I promise. Uh, when you start to think about what that must have actually been like. Not just the words that we read on paper, but the glory of God coming over this structure in this place. And then look what happens in verse 35. It says, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is amazing. This is amazing. Right, here's Moses. This is the guy. He's the guy. He's the man. He's the one that is the handpicked by God. We're going to trace his life and his work of leadership with God's people. He's the one who speaks to God on behalf of the people. He's the one who does all of these things. And yet, when the glory of God comes down to the tabernacle, he can't go in. Nobody can go in. And the people of God are out here and the presence of God is here. It's interesting because there's a few different places where you understand the, the presence of God and the demonstration of the glory of God. You know, the, the glory of God comes down on the mountain in fire. And uh, one of the guys, uh, one of our leaders said this to me after the first service. It's sort of like God's presence comes down in fire and the fire's shooting off the mountain and God is like, uh, don't go over there. <laughs> and I imagine the people of God were probably like, sounds good. Yeah, we'll stay over here. But here the glory of God has come to the temple. Moses can't go in. The people of God can't come in. And here is the question as we start the book of Leviticus. How do you approach a holy God? That's the question. And that's the question we're going to try to unpack a little bit today. How do you approach a holy God? Leviticus 1 begins this way. So just flip over now to the, the next book of the Pentateuch. This is the middle of the Pentateuch, the, the book of the law, and this is a massive download now as the people know about worship. Now it's gonna be the restrictions. What are going to set you apart as a people? What, are, what is gonna set you apart to make you different and how do you engage with your holy God? Leviticus 1, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He didn't say, come in. He spoke to Moses from the tent of the meeting, and he said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring it as your offering, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to make a male, take a male without, sorry, you are to offer a male without defect you must present it at the entrance to the tent of the meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. That begins chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter of instruction of how do you approach a holy God today I want to give you just a real brief overview of the book of Leviticus. We're going to look at a couple passages in particular beyond what we've done so far. Leviticus is the center of the Torah, uh, and it is probably the book that has stretched or broken more New Year's resolutions for people to say, I'm going to read through the whole Bible this year. And I think the reason is because you get into Genesis and you have all these kind of stories of the creation account and the work of God among the people and there's all of this narrative that is in many ways not unchallenging but not hard to read and so you're, you're sort of looking at the work of God with his people and then Exodus is the deliverance of God's people out of slavery and we see the power of God and again the narrative that continues to unfold and with a few exceptions in Exodus, it's dramatic I mean, it's, it's exciting. It's kind of wild ride stuff. And then you get to Leviticus, and you get a long download of what does it mean to be sort of sacrificially right before God. The reader encounters Leviticus and often wonders, what in the world am I supposed to do with this? A couple of things that I would have you just note in a general sense, because some of you have read through or are in the process of reading through the entire book. Let's, let's note a couple of things. Um, in his book How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth Gordon Fee uh, talks about how do you read the law the the book itself is actually really good I don't know if any of you have read that but it's helpful to say like when you're reading uh, wisdom literature how should we as New Covenant people read wisdom literature when you are reading the epistles of the New Testament how should we as New Covenant people read the epistles when you are reading uh, history uh, or the law how should we read that and uh, one of the th- couple things that I would just note, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unpack that question maybe a little bit more in next week's message. So we will get into that a little bit more. But here's a couple things that you maybe should, should just be aware of if you're not. Number one, we are not bound as new covenant believers. We are not bound by Old Testament law in the way that the Israelites were. In fact, uh, Gordon Fee goes on to say it this way. Uh, He says, if you follow Leviticus religiously, you'd probably get arrested at some point. I mean, it's that far removed from our typical practices, culturally or faith-based or whatever. So we're not bound by Old Testament law. Second thing is that this is critical for us to know, if you are a follower of Jesus, that when Jesus was challenged with whether or not he would follow the old covenant of the law, he said something very peculiar in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus said is this. He said, I don't want you to think that I've come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. That statement is really powerful because Jesus essentially is saying all of these things that we could study and wrestle over and try to get our minds around and understand, he would literally say, All of the sacrificial system that was set up for a holy God and an unholy people to have right communion, I've taken care of that. All of the priestly work that needed to be done for people to have an intercessor between sinful humanity and holy God, I've taken care of that. And so Jesus literally says, as we read these sort of difficult, admittedly hard passages, we can look at with a certain uh, dispensation of Jesus' grace over us and say Jesus has cared for all of this. So Jesus said, don't think I've come to throw it out. It's actually vitally important. And you're gonna hear some things today that will point you to the character of God and to your relationship with him. I mean, it, it gets very, deeply personal uh, very quickly as we get into the book of Leviticus, so much so that when I did a little talk through with some of my staff earlier this week, uh, one of my staff members said, I've never been so excited about a study on Leviticus. Why? Because it actually takes us to our own heart and to the work that God is going to do there. So next week, we're going to work through the question, how should we read and apply old testament law as new covenant believers we're going to get into that a little bit more i'm not going to touch on that as much uh this week but here let's give you a little bit of an overview this is from the guys of the bible project they do great work and i'll probably send a link uh uh, that has been helpful to me in my uh, email tomorrow that i send out to the church uh here's here's a, a comment that they say placed right between exodus and numbers leviticus acts as a bridge highlighting the need for restoration of the relationship between God and humanity. Leviticus is a story about God's desire to repair his relationship with Israel so that they can live with him in a restored holy space and rest with him as reformed people who represent his character to all the nations. If you've been tracking with us, you must remember that the covenant with Abraham was that I'm setting aside a people, I'm gonna grow them up through you, and I'm gonna set, up, set, up, set them aside so that the entire world can be blessed through them. So this is vitally important. When those people come under the oppression of Egypt, it's not just a people under the oppression of another people, this is the source of God's blessing coming under attack, and now they are delivered. And now they're being set aside so that they can live in such a way as to remain distinct, as God's people, they need to be in relationship with Him or it doesn't work. And God is saying, I'm going to provide a way for that to happen. So we see a couple different movements that happen throughout uh, the book. We see in chapters 1 through 7, there's a repairing of the relationship. Uh, that's what the sacrificial system essentially does. Uh, in chapters 8 to 16, there's a restoring of holy spaces. And then finally, in chapters 17 to 27, there's a reforming of the people themselves. And keep in mind, this, was, th- this is the precursor to the new covenant, that God would say, I'm going to get this heart of stone out of you. You know, this, this hardened heart that doesn't want to move and doesn't want to obey and doesn't want to follow and doesn't want to, I'm, I'm going to take that out of you and I'm actually going to write my law on your heart. I'm going to give you a new heart. And so in Christ, these are the promises that we actually now benefit from that they were only seeing the foreshadowing of in the days of Leviticus. Uh, As you read through the book of Leviticus, you see a few different themes that emerge. Again, I think these are important. Number one, God wants his people to be in close proximity to him. The question of how do you approach a holy God, that's a proximity question. How do you get into his presence? Uh, But we see that God wants it. The purity of God and the brokenness of humanity appear to be completely incompatible because every time they come into the same space, That which is unholy and that which is broken down gets basically obliterated. And so to be uncovered and in the presence of God is actually a really bad thing. So in in fact, we see a precursor to that uh, when you think about the Passover, right? So the the judgment of God is coming through the land to be outside of the covering of the blood was to be in a very bad place. In fact, I don't know that scripture gives us any indication of any Israelites who said, I just don't want to do that. But the idea was that to be outside of the covering of that blood was to be under the judgment of God, which you don't wanna be. So anyway, there's this incompatibility that's there. Uh, Number three, we see the sacrificial system was the initial means of atonement or restoration of relationship between sinful people and a loving God. Now interesting, who at this point in biblical history This is the early chapters of God revealing what he will do in his global redemption story. So you are way farther ahead in your time frame now when you look at where we are in the history of God's work in a global perspective. And then finally, the restored relationship is essential for human beings. Uh, It's essential for human beings to be in the presence of God, that is where life is found. So we're gonna unpack this a little bit, and here's uh, an odd passage maybe to help us do it. Leviticus 10, that's actually where I want you to to go with me today. Leviticus 10 um, gives us a negative example, but a powerful example of like, so what happens when you come into the presence of God either in an unworthy manner or with a wrong standing. And we see this with the account of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. And this is what it says in Leviticus 10. We'll read a handful of verses here. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke when he said, among those who approach me, I will be, I will be proved holy in the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And then it says Aaron remained silent. The following verses, Moses summons uh, some of the other relatives to come in and they, they carry them out. Can you imagine sort of to the dismay of the people, just right before this in in, uh, Leviticus chapter nine, Aaron has offered uh, an offering before the Lord that has been accepted. And so they're kind of learning the ropes. They're getting this right, all of these things that are being unfolded. What does it mean to come into the presence of a holy God? Well, this is what you need to do. And so Aaron does this and it's accepted before the Lord. The very next chapter, we see like joy turned to sorrow when Aaron's sons come in. It says they offered unauthorized fire, Uh, Some of your translations might say They offered strange fire before the Lord And here's what we don't know We don't know the specifics of really What what did they do specifically wrong Uh, It's not indicated here in the text to us But what we do know this We do know it's perfectly clear That they understood what the right fire was to offer And they didn't do that And yet here's where we gotta stop and, and wrestle with this the question we're asking today is, how do you approach a holy God? Well, it would be natural for many of us to say, well, if I hear stories like this, I think the answer would be, I don't want to, right? I mean, what kind of God? <laughs> Capricious or angry or hard to please or whatever. I mean, I've, I've known some people that have high expectations and hard to please kind of people, but this seems so disproportionate. That somebody would do one thing wrong and be met with a death sentence. That's, that's hard to wrestle with. So we got to do some business with this probably on a lot of different levels. And depending on where you are in your journey, you may find yourself wrestling uh, with some cynicism here today. But here's what I want you to begin to see. We're going to look at sort of three little pieces of this. The first is a critical question that shakes us. I'm gonna talk about that with you for a moment. I want to talk about the fear of the Lord that brings life, and then I want to talk about a gospel summary that orients us. All three of these points are very interrelated one to another. And so I think you'll find that we're working toward an answer to this question. How do we approach a holy God? Especially in light of stories like this. So, what is the critical question that shakes us? It's very simple. And yet, most of us are still very much in process with it. The question is, my way or God's way? (laughs) That's it. My way or God's way? This is the, I think, perhaps greatest obstacle to coming into a relationship with God is that we have to actually do business with the question of, is my way or God's way? especially because every single one of us, the natural bent of the human heart is to say, my way, right? I mean, that's, that's how you were born. You were born with a my way sort of orientation or dispensation, and so to come into the place of saying that it would be God's way and not my way actually represents a massive transformation of your life. And it shows up everywhere. So Rick Richardson, who's the author of a book called You Found Me, which is an interesting book because it talks about the fact that there's a lot of people who are actually really not as far from Christ as perhaps our culture would lead us to believe. We say young people just don't have any interest in Jesus anymore, and yet I see young people here who are leaning in and pursuing, which is an interesting thing. So in this book, he talks about this idea of a self at center versus God at center life. And the fact that this is The delineation between those who worship God and those who don't. You know, this idea of dealing with the the notion of the sovereign self that is untouchable. That is our natural dispensation. Now I want to tell you just a couple things that are interesting about this, because first of all, as soon as you read a passage like this, you are inclined to say, I don't think I would have done it that way. That's that's you're you're now in the question. God's way or my way? And that will be, especially friends that are here that are, that are young in your faith or maybe exploring faith, let me just give you a little, a little forewarning. That question will continue to haunt you for the entirety of your journey with God. God's way or my way? Now, it's actually incredibly liberating when we get it right and there will be times that we get it right, but I don't care how mature you are. If you are if you, it doesn't matter if you've walked with the Lord for 50 years, 100 years, or whatever, that there are still gonna be times where you're gonna be wrestling with this as God's way or my way. Most of us are wrestling right now with something that is God's way or my way. So just as a, as a little show to make sure I'm not alone in this, if you have had that experience of having to wrestle with my way or God's way, just raise a hand. Okay, almost every person here. Just incidentally, anybody in that space right now that you're like, hey, actually, if I'm honest, I would say I'm wrestling with a my way or God's way thing right now. Several, yeah. It's a real life kind of thing. These are Jesus-loving people who are saying, yeah, it's part of the journey. So uh, here's another piece of of this whole thing. Um, So the self is on the throne of my life, naturally. There's a massive shift in my life when self comes off the throne of my life and God gets on the throne of my life, God's way or my way. What what I find interesting about this is that um, self-absorption is actually incredibly off-putting to everybody, right? This is not a faith or not faith thing. It's not a Jesus or not Jesus thing. It's if you are a self-absorbed person, you are probably very off-putting to the people around you. And you can see it really easily in other people. You say, man, that guy's self-absorbed. Man, she is just narcissist or whatever. And no like again, your experience might be different than mine, but I don't hear anybody saying that in like a positive way. Like, man, she is self-absorbed and I can't wait till we hang out again. You know? So, there's a there's a there's an observation here that like while none of us, faith or not faith people, sort of champion the self-absorbed life, all of us start with the wrestling match of my way or God's way. So that's a a piece of this as well. There is an inherent tension here because we actually can't approach this topic without getting back to the subject we talked about a few weeks ago, which is how do we define freedom? Uh, And this is a very important concept as we develop our biblical understanding. Um, The idea that freedom would be the absence of any parameters um, is absolutely an untenable place for you to be. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. You can watch that message uh, again. But let me, a, let me give you an example. This is from Tim, Tim Keller. He would make this argument. That he would say, we deal with the notion of freedom in almost every area of our life, and we want to be free. We want to have freedom. And yet, here's what we find. We find that our own pursuit of freedom will oftentimes infringe upon our other freedoms. The example could look like this. I'm a grandfather. I'm not a grandfather, but someday perhaps I will be. If I am a grandfather and I say, I want to have a robust life so that I can hang out and be with my kids. But I also say, I want the freedom to eat whatever I want to eat. That's a very, this is a very simple example. There is very likely, especially with my natural inclinations, A point at which my freedom on one hand will infringe upon my freedoms in the other. In fact, every single person that I talk to who's of a certain age, 40s are rough, right? I'm in my 40s, everything starts falling apart. You gotta start actually taking care of yourself and everything. All of those decisions are freedom decisions as to say whether or not I'm going to act as if I don't have to get sleep. I'm gonna act as if I don't have to eat well. I'm gonna act as if exercise or self-care, those kind of things don't matter. If in the name of freedom I decide I'm gonna just do whatever I want, I'm gonna find that that very pursuit of freedom actually creates a withholding of freedom in other places. That I can't do the things that I want to do because I've chosen to pursue freedom. So this idea of freedom without any parameters is actually completely untenable. So we get to this question now, how do you approach a holy God? And I think the wrong parameter is to say, however I want. There's no scriptural evidence for that, including the hard passages we're looking at today. Incidentally, if you're waiting for a world to operate in a way in which you will be able to stay the center and everything can revolve around you, you're gonna find that the world doesn't work that way and God doesn't work that way. So you're gonna find you're waiting for a long time and I would even go so far as to say this, when we approach our understanding of God that way or even, listen, even when we look at scriptures, it's fine to say, I don't understand that. I don't get that. I need to dig in and understand that better. But when we find ourselves in the place of saying, I think God is doing it wrong right? Which is kind of the the self-at-the-center thing. It's like, I wouldn't do it like that. I think he's doing it the wrong way. This is a hard question to wrestle with. It is a question that shakes us. Is it my way or God's way? When we get it wrong, what we end up is a completely inverted relational understanding of who God is, you know? I've got this perfect understanding of a God who just exists to meet all of my needs and bring me glory, and then I wonder why I'm so frustrated, And I talk to people all the time, and people say, I feel like God's not speaking to me. (laughs) Because you're not talking to him. You're wondering when he's going to do the next thing for you. So if you have an inverted sort of relational dynamic with God, it leads to an incredibly frustrating way of being. So a lot of times our our God frustrations, when we trace them back, we find that we have this inverted sort of sense. I've said that enough times. My way or God's way is a question that shakes us. And I want to leave with a positive uh, on this point as well, that sometimes by God's grace, we do get it right. And I see, I've seen that in your life. Some of you are in the, in the wilderness seasons right now. That was the number one thing that people said from last week's message, I'm in the wilderness. But I'm hearing this from people that are saying, I'm trusting God in the middle of the wilderness because it's not my way. And in that space, when we get that right, even when it's painful, what we actually find is that there is a joy, that begins to bubble up in the context of a right relationship, there is an experience of the shalom of God at which the peace actually can come and the rightness can come even before the circumstances are better or even in the unknown as to whether or not they will be. So sometimes by God's grace, we get it right. And I see that testimony in many of your lives many times. Um, That's the critical question. Is it gonna be my way or God's way? Um, So a related point, I'll just do this one pretty quickly. Um, When we look at this sort of process and coming into the presence of God, these guys did it in a wrong way. I imagine there was a real fear of the Lord that gripped the people. So, because now they're like, is this a loving God? Is this not a loving God? You know, this did not work out well. The fear of the Lord that brings life. This is our second point. There's lots of scriptures that talk about the fear of the Lord in very positive ways. Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord, beginning of wisdom, that's echoed in Proverbs 9 as well. Proverbs 15, the fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. And underline that word, because that's where we're, we're going uh, here. Proverbs one 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, fools that despise wisdom, and in, uh, fools despise wisdom and instruction. Um, Let me give you, since we're talking about heavy things today Let me give you a little bit of a lighter example Imagine that I'm going to hire you To be an intern uh, on our staff You're going to start this week You're 22 years old you're young, you're getting started, and we say, you know, we, got, we see leadership in you. We want to pull you into to this. Right, we do this frequently. You know, we bring different leaders in because we like to develop people or whatever. But you're that leader now. So imagine you're that young leader, you come in. And the first thing that you do as a, uh, as a new intern, day one, is that you come in and, and you just start bossing everybody around. <laughs> you know, you're like, you need to do more of this. Uh, I don't want to see you doing that again. Uh, I want you to show up earlier. I want you to stay later. Uh, Pastor Aaron, I looked at your calendar, those meetings. No, I I canceled those meetings. Uh, You're going to be doing this instead of that. Now, assuming you made it through your first day, what would be wrong with that scenario? Why would I probably be sitting down with you and saying, you got to stay in your lane here a little bit? Well, if that kind of situation was going on, correcting that young man or that young woman would not be a symptom of tyrannical dictatorship. It would be a reality that this person is trying to control things outside of their earned sphere of influence. They do not have the responsibility yet to lead in ways that they're trying to lead, right? So what do they need? Humility. They need a humble heart that said, "Well, will teach me so that I can grow. Teach me so that I could be entrusted with more." And this is true about the fear of the Lord that brings life. See, see, here is what we actually find: when you look at Scripture, and I would encourage you to do this, the coming into the presence of the Lord is more often described with the disintegration of the person coming into the presence than otherwise. So we see things like in Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah gets this vision of God, he comes into his presence, and here's Isaiah, he's a prophet, he's a man of God, he's a good guy and all that kind of stuff, and what's his response? In the reality and the light of the holiness of God, he cries out, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, I live in a people of unclean lips and he is disintegrating before the presence of God. Now there's restoration that happens but it's God's restoration. Nobody swaggers into the presence of God. See this with Moses. Now Moses maybe was the closest but Moses says, show me your glory. I want to see your face. God says, you can't see my face and live and then when he kind of sees like his, his back, he's like, my glory will kind of pass by and I'll give you a, a little glimpse of it. And the impact on Moses' life is that he comes back down to the people and he's so radiant with the glory of God just from that sort of off encounter, that little bit of a peripheral encounter. He's so radiant with the presence of God that the people are like, we have to cover you up. Like we can't look at you because of the presence of God that's coming off of you. It's like a kung fu panda. My eyes, he's too awesome. (laughs) I love that reference. Some of you don't understand that reference. But it does work. Uh, This idea of coming into the presence of God, swaggering in, you just don't really see it throughout scripture. That takes us to this concept of humility. Humility 101. Here's here's another. I mean, I'm giving you some major, I'm giving you some big bricks today. Okay? My way or God's way. That's That's a life lesson right there. God, humble me. God gives, resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You want to hear the voice of God more in your life. God, humble me. It's got to be your way, not my way. I got to get low. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, then in due time, he'll lift you up. That's what Peter said. So we see that theme all throughout Scripture. We get humility 101. Here's what you actually get. Now, again, it's a miracle of God when any of us gets a little bit humble, probably, right? But assuming that that happens, and God can do that, That is getting you out of elementary school and onto a master's degree. Like there's nothing in your Christian journey, there's nothing in your pursuit of Christ that is not affected to the positive when you learn what it is to get humble. Because you stop making these these expectations of God that you're expecting him to do it your way. You're expecting the world to work your way. You're expecting Jesus to work your way, whatever. Instead we're saying we're humbled before him. Though he slay me, I'm gonna follow him. Peter said to Jesus, where are we going to go? You've got the words of life. So yeah, we're going to follow you, even when it's hard. Jesus says, pick up your cross. That's, that is humble. That's humility 101 all the time. Okay, so humility. When we get that, we step into a whole new level in terms of this understanding, how do we approach a holy God? Now, Jesus said it this way. I'll give you a quick example from him. He said two people went to the temple. One guy's a Pharisee, one guy's a tax collector. The Pharisee says, hey God, I'm glad that I'm not like this man, right? Maybe Jesus was creating a caricature. You know what I mean? It was probably a little on the nose. Hey God, I'm glad I'm not like him. But maybe Jesus gives us that kind of on the nose example because he knows that we need to look a little deeper in our own hearts and lives. And a lot of times we're pretty convinced that we're in pretty good shape before God. He says, there's another guy. He's a tax collector. He's probably not very honest, and he's probably not very well liked or loved in the community, and his his simple prayer is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus says this. That guy went home justified. Justified. That's a legal term. It means as just as if he had never had any infraction just as if he had never sinned he went home with a right standing before god the guy that was the probably the the worst record was no longer going to stand on his record but going to stand on the record of christ and the other guy self-confident and still a little prideful needing to be humbled says i'm pretty i feel pretty good about where i am and he didn't go home justified how do you approach a holy god That is our question for today. Here's the last little point. We'll just touch on it. It's pretty quick. This uh, last one is a gospel summary that orients us. This is a a pretty amazing question. Um, I said jokingly before, not fascinating, because uh, one of my staff members graciously said to me, Aaron, you say fascinating all the time. I was like, oh, I didn't realize I did that. It's one of those things I just didn't. But the thing is, This is fascinating to me. (laughs) It actually is. I am fascinated by this question. After things come into focus, you read through the book of Leviticus and you begin to contemplate things like the critical question that shakes us, the fear of the Lord that brings life, we kind of arrive here. How does an omnipotent God actually engage with a broken, frail humanity. That is the question of Leviticus. How does an omnipotent God actually engage with a broken, frail humanity? It is a question of power. It is a question of proximity. It is a question of protection. Because literally to come into the power of God without the proper covering and protection is to be eviscerated. So, God is working from time immemorial up to this point to actually bridge. God Himself is answering the question. God Himself is actually making a way. This example is not unique to me by any stretch. I've heard several people use it, but it goes like this The sun is the source of life for everything that we know, for every system, for every ecosystem, for every habitat. And yet to be in direct presence of the sun will obliterate the living thing or person. To stare at the sun is to go blind. <laughs> you guys know Brian Regan? I got six on the sun stare. How many of you know that? All right, you gotta go listen to that. That's funny. Uh, to stare at the sun is to go blind. Exposure to the sun burns us. Contact with the sun, it's impossible. Even with proper heat shields or the -the state-of-the-art thing, most people would say the closest you could get to the sun might be maybe 1.3 million miles away. And even then, you're probably still going to die. Just can't do it. To be in contact with and in proximity to is to be completely exposed. If that simple illustration helps us understand the problem We actually see in Leviticus, of all places, a beautiful and elegant solution beginning. And that is that God is making a way for restoration and relationship. That ultimately the fulfillment of the sacrificial system would come in a celebration that we just undertook last week. That in Christ it is completed. He is the sacrificial Passover lamb. He is the scapegoat. He is the one on whom the sin has been placed and cast outside the city. He is the one who stands between the infinitely powerful, omnipotent holy God and the broken, fragile humanity. And listen to this. He doesn't just say, I'm gonna open the door and make the way. He says, I'm gonna bear the brunt of being eviscerated like, you think about this. For every one of us that looks at this and we go, like well, okay. he's an angry God, he's capricious, he's hard to please, he's all of this kind of stuff. And then you look at the sacrifice of Christ. He says, I'm gonna stand in the way, I'll take the full blow of the wrath of God on behalf of sinful humanity. Every single one of us. And then he does. And then he does. So that... Today, we started this message talking about Hebrews chapter 4. Because we have such a high priest, let us come boldly into the presence. That was not accessible in the days of Leviticus. You don't come boldly in. You come with a sacrifice. Jesus says, I am the sacrifice, come boldly in. I'm the high priest, come boldly in. Today, you have done something supernatural and coming in to worship God together, to welcome his presence in a way that you never would have been able to before. So if that gives you just a little snapshot, we're gonna talk more about the sacrifice of Christ next week, but if that gives you just a little snapshot of how important this bridge actually is, God was making a way. Today we can say God has made a way. And for all that are in Christ, Welcome to the presence. The spirit of God lives in you. The presence of God guides you. You can actually talk to him. Pray to him. Orient your life around worship of him. This is a great privilege. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up and lead us in a beautiful song of commitment. Let me ask you to simply give this this response. I, I think it's a very simple response today. Um, if you are in Christ today, you've committed your heart and your life to him, Easter to you is your way of saying, uh, I've come through and celebrated the the empty tomb and the finished work of Jesus and, and I'm just taking hold of all of that. You know, let today be a day where you say Jesus thank you for your sacrifice and, and to the extent that you're still wrestling with the question of God's way and my way and still wrestling with God help me to be humble like let God do that work in you that can be your invitation okay uh I'm deeply interested in the person who would say I have never yet received the sacrificial work of Christ you know you want to keep him as like a feel good about he's kind of there sometimes or you talk to him sometimes or whatever but listen there's a real transaction that takes place to come into the presence of God and have a right standing there is a blood sacrifice that Jesus has done and our part is to follow Christ to say your way not my way his way was the sacrifice of Christ so the question is: how do we approach a holy God well we come through the sacrifice of Christ he opens the door right so, I'm deeply interested. Uh, if you're here today and you say, I don't think I've ever done that kind of business with the Lord, you know, I, I don't think I have. Um, let today be the day. I mean, the, we say these words all the time, but when you say them in this light, it's like, well, these are beautiful words. I fall on the finished work of Jesus. That's your prayer. Make that your prayer. I'm recognizing my sin keeps me from holy God. I'm recognizing that what Jesus has done for me opens the door. It was costly. He gave his life. He suffered, he experienced experienced the separation. This is a whole other sermon, but I just need to say this real quick. We've been talking about the presence of God presence, 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 presence. You know the only thing worse than coming into the presence of God unprepared? Is the absence of the presence of God. That's hell. That's what hell is, right? That's the ultimate, that's the ultimate judgment. Jesus comes in and he says, no, I'm, I'm gonna invite you into the presence so that you would never have to experience the removal from the presence of God. And that's good news. It's a good sacrifice. Don't leave, that, don't leave that business undone, okay? Don't leave that business undone. And if you need to talk to somebody about it or pray with somebody about it, we'd love to do that. But you can, right where you are, say, Lord, Jesus, be my Lord. I'm gonna fall in your finished work, okay? So stand up, let me pray for you, and then we'll uh, have the team lead us. Jesus, we're grateful for your finished work today. Thank you for the ultimate sacrifice, the fulfillment of of a system that not one of us would be able to keep. We just couldn't do it, Lord. Your people couldn't do it. And yet Jesus, you were able to, to be the sinless sacrifice for us. So I, I just pray that we would uh, lean into that today. I pray that the person that has never made a commitment to Jesus, let, let today be that day. We don't want you to, We don't want you to go home not doing that business with the Lord. So Lord, meet people where, we, where they are. Thank you for your great love for us. We are not consumed in your presence because we are under the blood of the Lamb. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.